0: Our scripture text for this evening comes from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, as we read verses 12 through 19. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or, an, a, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let God glorify, let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, that will be the outcome. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Lord, by nature, our eyes are blind and our ears are stopped up. Would you help us through your spirit to see you? to hear you, and to love you as you set yourself before us in the text tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the greatest things about our God is the counterintuitive way that he works in the lives of people and in history. You know, we see this time and time again in history. We've seen it in the Old Testament as well. Think about this. In the Old Testament, uh, he conquers Jericho through his people using just some trumpets marching around a city. That is very counterintuitive. That is not the way you and I would plan on knocking the walls of a great city down. I think we probably would all admit that much. Uh, Think about this. He uses Gideon with his tiny army of 300 men to destroy a much larger army. Uh, Think about this. In the Gospels... Jesus uses 12 scared and trembling men to spread a message that conquers the world. And in our lives, God works in counterintuitive ways. And especially, I'm thinking this evening, because of our passage, of suffering. Because by now, I'm sure you see very little, there's very little or no debate that if the point of 1 Peter wasn't to teach us to live as Christians and sojourners and strangers In the world, the point of the book would probably be suffering and how to do it well. Uh, Suffering seems to almost be the heart and soul of this book, if we're honest, if we're looking for its heart and soul. And it's no accident that this book about being strangers in a land where we don't belong has the idea of suffering as such a major theme because strangers and sojourners suffer the question isn't whether we will suffer, but how we'll suffer as far as Peter's concerned. And Peter is absolutely committed to making sure that we suffer well and that we suffer for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. And if I could use one word to sum up how Peter views suffering, it would be this word, fruitfulness, fruitfulness, because as I As I mentioned, God's way of working is counterintuitive. He uses the stuff that we can't explain to do great and unexpected things. And especially tonight, he says, fruitfulness looks like this. Death in us, life in others. Death in us, life in others. Suffering for us, glory and rejoicing and flourishing and spreading out from that suffering for others. So one of the places Paul saw this happen firsthand, suffering, turning into fruitfulness for others. Think about this was the life of Stephen. Stephen was the preeminent apologist in Jerusalem. Uh, Luke says there was nobody that could withstand Stephen. And you hear that sermon that he gives in Genesis 7. It is a masterpiece of biblical theology. As he walks us through the entire history of Israel, this man is gifted, this man is a blessing to the church, and yet he suffered. And and I think every single one of us would look at the situation and we would say, Stephen should live to fight another day, uh, because he would be way more useful that way, he is a gifted apologist. So why would God take him out of the world now? and surely his death at the moment it happened to the watching church looked like the greatest disaster in the early church and you can imagine this this defeat happens in Acts chapter seven. you can imagine the sorrow, the misery uh, the the, the Sadness of the people, and yet, years later, Paul reflected on his life and his journey to Christ. And it surely became evident to him that the suffering that Stephen endured ended up being the raw material that God used to produce incredible fruit, including the conversion of Paul. The seed of Stephen Goes into the ground. And the people are weeping. And they're asking God. Why would you do this? What would you possibly bring out of this man's suffering? And the answer is. The greatest evangelist in all of church history. Paul later says. Suffering is a privilege. That's been granted to you. It really is an honor. Even if you don't see it as it's happening. That's something that is learned from Scripture, and it's something we can see, I think, at least most of us can see it by looking into our own experience. He has seen death, and he has seen suffering turn into fruitfulness for others. And that theme of suffering leading to fruitfulness is there in Paul's letters, and it's here with Peter as well. And what I, I hope is that tonight you will, you will be convinced Not because uh, I'm clever or not because of any sort of smart ideas on my own part. I hope you will be convinced by the word of God, which is far more powerful than hearing somebody on a soapbox. I hope you will be convinced not only to suffer well and to glorify God in your suffering, but also that you would be convinced that you matter to God, that he loves you, and that every single tear that you shed is of absolute value in your father's eyes. Tonight's passage is structured sort of like a, a rapid fire series of encouragements from Peter and, 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 and followed by a concluding statement that sort of caps off most or all of what came before. So, so tonight let's look at the encouragement Peter gives, especially when it comes to this subject of suffering as a way of reinforcing his conviction that God cares about our sufferings and he plans to bring fruit out of them. Peter makes three commands in the passage. He says, rejoice, be blessed, and glorify God. Rejoice, be blessed, and glorify God. Let's look at each of those commands. First, he says, rejoice. He says it in verse 12. He says, do not be surprised... But rejoice. Do not be surprised, but rejoice. Rejoice is one of those words I, that we, we think we know. If you asked us to define it, you'd have more of a struggle, I think. Rejoicing is God's word for how we naturally respond to something good. It's a, it's a response of blessing. It is a response of delight. So, in the Old Testament, a righteous son, what does he he do? He makes his father rejoice. Uh, In the Old Testament, what does it say about wine? It says, wine makes the heart rejoice. Uh, A fruitful land, what does it make the people do? It makes the people rejoice. Over and over in the Psalms, God shows kindness. And what does he make the people do? He makes them rejoice. And so hundreds of times in the Bible, God's people are either rejoicing or they're commanded to rejoice. And almost always in the Old Testament, when people rejoice, it's because something good has happened to them. Some blessing has happened to them. And so they respond in the natural way. They respond by rejoicing. And here's the interesting turn. In the New Testament, things get turned on their head just a little bit. Think about what Jesus says. He says, You will rejoice and weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Do you see that? That's counterintuitive. You're going to be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Or or think about this. Jesus says this. He says, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Sorrow turned into joy. Or you have that counterintuitive moment in the book of Acts where it says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Sorrow, suffering. Turned into rejoicing. And so suddenly now in the New Testament, what happens? God's people begin acting the way people used to act when everything in their life was going their way. It is very confusing to the watching world when that happens. And Peter shows us tonight, it is a very high priority for God that his saints should rejoice when it doesn't seem to make sense. He's very committed to the world seeing that. Seeing that counterintuitive kind of behavior. And so listen to what he says in verses 12 and 13 of our passage. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, this is filled with a lot of of arguments, sort of sub-arguments going on here. But if you cut those out, and if you cut out some of the other points Peter makes here, I want you to hear this pattern. He says, don't be surprised at suffering, but rejoice that you may rejoice. Rejoice that you may also rejoice when his glory is revealed. So this is not a delusional rejoicing. He's he's not telling us that we should sort of psychotically laugh, even though we're in complete misery, you know, like the Joker or something like that. You know, that's not what he's calling us to. What he's calling us to is a rational, reasonable response. Because, listen again, he says, Rejoice that you may also rejoice when his glory is revealed. So, in in other words, Peter says, When suffering comes your way... Rejoice, because not only is suffering not strange, not only is it actually part of his plan, but his plan is that your rejoicing will be multiplied. If you can experience the smile of Christ when suffering is at its worst, think of the joy you're capable of when the whole promise gets delivered. Rejoicing now is... It's almost like an investment. We talked about investments last week. Rejoicing now is like an investment for the future that you make because you trust the one who's going to deliver the promise. Back in biblical times, people didn't have banks. And so when you would travel, what were you supposed to do? Just take all your possessions with you? Well, what you would do is you would leave your money or your possessions or your thing that you valued with somebody that you trusted. And so if the person you left it with was crooked, you could be ruined. And the idea here is God is the one you can leave your suffering with and you can trust him to do what's right. You can take that thing. You can take that suffering that you are enduring or that you will endure or that you have endured. You can take it. You can give it to him and you can trust him with it we can rejoice because we can trust the one who holds it who holds us and has us even when we suffer and that is not easy to do and it doesn't come naturally but it is 100% the plan of God that we rejoice because of God and his promises and not because the circumstances at the moment look so promising second peter says be blessed," He says, first he says, rejoice. Next he says, be blessed. Look more fully at what he says in verse 14. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I, I think this is helpful for Peter to say for a couple of reasons. One is, when we hear the word persecution, I think we automatically think of official government actions, we think of people being crucif- crucified, we think of people being thrown to the, the lions, uh, we think of uh, people being burned alive in Nero's gardens, and, and things like that, executions, death, beheadings, and, and that, that happened. That's real, that's historical, but I think sometimes we can be troubled because we say, well, that's not happening to me. And we can either feel guilty, what am I doing wrong, why am I not suffering, um, or we can think, well, that the things I'm going through don't matter at all to God. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if even as you sit here tonight, you think that sort of thing hasn't happened to me. But you think about this. By Peter's time in, in Christian history, that isn't the kind of persecution they had faced yet. By the time Peter writes this, there was no official persecution of Christians in Rome, people weren't being beheaded, uh, certainly not in any sort of large numbers, not in any uh, government capacity, necessarily. That was coming later. Uh, Peter is writing in this time where the persecution is focused and and it 's temporary and, and it 's essentially the, the the society around mocking and pointing at Christians and saying, uh, "You guys haven't joined us." In the things you're supposed to be joining us in. Why are you bowing down to the gods? You are atheists. And Peter already said what's going on. Why are they being persecuted? Because they are surprised you do not join them. That's what chapter 4 verse 4 says. And because they don't live like they used to. They get insulted. And so Christian I want you to know. Insults are a form of persecution. You can use the word bullying if that's. Helpful to you at all. Uh, there is that, that old rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That is a lie. You tell yourself that because you don't want the words to hurt you. But the only way that words can't hurt us is if we don't care what the person who's insulting us thinks of us. I, uh, I remember as a teenager being made fun of because I was a Christian by a classmate. His name was Clint. It's been long enough. I think the moratorium on not saying his name is up. And, and he laughed at me, and he scoffed at me because I was a Christian. And uh, I remember at the time being very hurt because Clint was the, the quarterback. Clint was very popular. He was very athletic. And he made fun of me, and he did it in front of other people. And I remember not having any kind of response to give to him. He, he made fun of me because I was a Christian. Uh, and words can hurt, and, and Peter knows that. He wouldn't mention this. He wouldn't say this if it wasn't true. He says they insult you they're surprised that you don't join them and so they insult you and uh and i have to tell you if i'm honest as a christian who believes what christians have believed for millennia about especially human sexuality it does hurt to be called a bigot i think i'm supposed to say it doesn't hurt i think i'm supposed to say it doesn't bother me the, the, to be mistreated by the world And I realize there actually are people out there who actually qualify as bigots. There are actual human beings out there who really hate others, even though they don't know them and they don't try to understand them first. But, But as a Christian who does love others and wants to love others better, it actually does hurt me to be called a bigot or a hateful person. That's my reflex. That's my response. And I suspect if most of us are honest, it does bother us to be called names. It does hurt to be derided by others and hated by others. Uh, it does hurt to have Taylor Swift devote an entire music video to giving you a lecture on the superiority of her morality and mocking Christians as toothless backwoods hillbillies. It, it doesn't feel good to be treated that way. And what I would say is we must be doubly sure to outlove others As much as we can, because we have to make sure, as Peter says here, that we don't deserve the insults. He doesn't say we should dodge the insults, he doesn't say we should do anything to not be insulted, but what he does say is we must not deserve the insults. Bigot is just one example of the names that Christians are called today. Back in Peter's day, the popular word was was atheist. And these names are just the tip of the iceberg. Whatever insults we get, we had better be absolutely sure they are undeserved and unfair. We may not be able to control what others say, but we can control whether it's true. And Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Why does, he, was that, why does that make us blessed? Put it simply, we, are, we are already have the beginning of what God is going to finish in us. We've got the down payment. And so whatever the world thinks of us, they don't really know us. Whatever people may throw our way isn't true and it isn't right. And there is a certain comfort in knowing that if we're treated unjustly, if we're mocked, if we're hated unjustly, then the comfort is we have something the world doesn't understand. The insults shouldn't surprise us. Peter says, if you're unjustly insulted, believe it or not, you are blessed. And this is part of the plan. Third this evening, Peter says we should glorify God. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So he does a contrast here. He says, he says, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. So you see that exchange back and forth. Um, to know what Peter means, we need to know what it means to be ashamed. If we don't know what it means to be ashamed, then we aren't going to know how he intends us to glorify God here. The specific meaning of what Peter is saying here for a Christian to act shamefully and especially to commit apostasy to abandon the faith to abandon what's been taught and given to us the faith once delivered it's to compromise because the pressure is so great peter knows the pressure on christians you know in that day the the pressure was sacrifice to the gods sacrifice to the gods just just make a little sacrifice it doesn't even matter it doesn't, even mean, it doesn't even have to mean anything. Just go through the motion. Just do the thing you're supposed to do. You know, just, just put the rainbow flag up on your social media profile. It doesn't have to mean anything. Just do it. We'll all leave you alone if you do it. Peter is saying, do not be ashamed. Stay strong. Uh, I'm going to go back to this issue because I already raised it once and I might as well. Uh, It's Pride Month uh, for the gay community. And and as Christians, we need to recognize that all people are created in the image of God and all people are worthy of dignity and respect because all human beings bear his image. Um, And yet one of the most discouraging things about this month has been just seeing so many Christians relenting. And compromising the truth when it comes to Pride Month. you know, uh, It's such a small gesture. It's so small. It's so easy to do. And you can always just tell yourself it's so meaningless. You know, posting the rainbow flag on your timeline. Um, people I never thought I would see do it. It's just left and right. Everybody's falling, it feels like. And the pressure is incredible. The crowd is scary. On top of that, I think most of us have somebody in our lives. I don't know about all of you, but... But I do, and I know many of you do. You have somebody in your life who struggles with same-sex attraction, and you think, how can I love this person and yet not compromise? And, and we want to know, how can I love them in a way that honors God? Is, is the culture right? Am I just supposed to say that everything that feels okay, good is okay in God's sight? And I, I can't even say that about myself and my own thoughts and feelings. Am I supposed to say that about everybody else? And it is incredibly tempting to compromise in the name of what we think the culture says might be love. We should absolutely love our neighbors. We should absolutely love our family, regardless of the sin in their lives. God did that for us. He showed us love, even when we didn't deserve it. But we can do better in our love than reinforce destruction. Now, now I've mentioned this issue twice this evening. Why am I doing that? Is it because I'm obsessed and I can't think of anything else? Well, I mean, not at all. As your pastor, though, it's my job to take the current pressures that you feel, and I know you all feel this. And, I, and my job, part of it, is to apply the scripture to that situation. And if the whole culture right now is telling us all, hey, you need to go out and sacrifice to the gods, I would be talking right now about sacrificing to the gods. But that's not what the culture is doing right now. And so to be honest, I I can't think of any area where Christians face more pressure than to fold on this issue. And when this issue falls, all the other issues fall too. I've seen it time and time again in people's lives. As soon as they fold on this because they know the scripture doesn't approve, suddenly it's as though the walls of the city have collapsed and everything else ends up going as well. And so this is the topic of the moment. And I think I would be negligent if I didn't make this application here. There there will come a day, if you don't feel the pressure yet, where you will need this encouragement. And maybe if you don't need the encouragement, your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren will. I am absolutely sure of it. I really think that's what Peter is doing here. He says, if you suffer, if you feel the culture's... Pressure to conform, and if you act just like them, he says, Do not be ashamed, don't do it. To capitulate is to be ashamed. He says, Resist, stay strong, tell the truth, even to your own hurt. And yet, we should do it with respect, and yet, we should do it with love. We should not do it with mockery, we should not do it by treating others badly. Now, they'll still call us bigots they will still call us haters that's something we can't avoid because unless we completely give in unless we completely change unless we completely bow the knee and say no to god unless we do that they will never be completely satisfied so we should never take halfway measures and yet we know if our behavior has deserved scorn and we should never ever deserve to be called bigots, we should love, and yet without compromising. And so for, so for Peter, if we are professing Christians and we do something to earn the name of thief or evildoer or meddler, or in this case, I'm going to say bigot, he says, then we are ashamed. And if we abandon the, 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 the truth that God has given to us, we are ashamed, we've abandoned the faith. And if you look at the beginning of the book of Job, you know, Job, he lost everything. He lost his his children. He lost his home. He lost his flocks. He lost his money. And his wife told him to do something. She said, curse God and die. She was tempting him to do what Peter says, don't do. She tempted Peter to be ashamed. Just curse God and die. She was tempting him to become apostate. And so what is the opposite of being ashamed here? What does it look like to glorify God here? What does it look like to not be ashamed? Peter says you can glorify God by remaining faithful. You can glorify God by living with integrity. By living out the name of Christian and Not in a sense by taking the Lord's name in vain. Let not the name of Christ be wasted on us as believers. His name is not just a slogan that gets pasted onto us. He is a person who encompasses all our life. Glorify him. Testify that he's worth it in how we live and how we love others. Even as we're festooned with insults and hatred. In the end, Peter says, it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. So he's, he's pointing out something that was true even in the Old Testament. This is a phrase that comes from Malachi chapter 3. And the point of the phrase is, if God is deeply concerned about how his people live and how we treat one another, even as those who receive grace from him, imagine how concerned unbelievers should be. I, don't, I do think that we as Christians do make a mistake when we are overly fixated on how unbelievers live. Um, if we are not careful, we can end up making it our life's mission to whitewash society and push for people to get their act together and be moral people. And yet we can forget that before all those things, he is concerned about us as his people. I think one of the great shames of evangelicals in the last 20 years is we've been deeply concerned about the private behavior of other people and yet that less outwardly scandalous behavior of us doesn't bother us in our own hearts and among our own people. Sometimes we even excuse it and write us off, write it off. Well, he's just a baby Christian. This shouldn't be, says Peter. Before we focus on the behaviors or lifestyles of others, how do we live? What do we love? Are, Are we the sort of neighbors we're supposed to be? Judgment begins first at the household of God. What Peter makes here in his conclusion is an argument from the greater to the lesser. He says, if even Christians face the judgment of God, and yet they survive it in Christ, but even if Christians... Face the judgment of God. Know that the very ones who have caused your suffering will face that judgment as well. And if they are not in Christ, then they have no no shield. They have no protection. They have no shelter from the judgment of God. And so the promise here is simple. God will deal with all our pains. And he will deal with the source of our pains too. So that means... Let's get practical. If you're a school kid and you are being bullied, the promise is that God cares about you and he knows the ones who torment you and they will have to answer for what they've done. So if you're a kid and someone's picked on you or been mean to you or cruel to you, you need to believe and you need to know that God will do the right thing. It means that if you just got fired because of your Christian convictions... Because you couldn't do something that you were forbidden to do by God. The promise here is God cares and he will make those who did this answer to him one way or another. Uh, either they will eventually bow their knee to Christ in this life or they will do so with the judgment. If you're in pain, if you're fighting sickness, if you're in agony, the scripture promises that the serpent who began all of this will be judged And we know his judgment. He will be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. And that's not the end of the promise either. The promise is he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He knows your tears. He counts your tears. He will wipe every tear you have ever shed or ever will shed. He will make up for all of it. He says, death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This sums it all up. If you missed everything else that has been said, lean forward. Listen now. How do we respond to that promise that our suffering will be answered for? Verse 19 holds the key. He says, let those who suffer according to God entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Answer this question in your own heart and in your own mind. Who has suffered the most unjust suffering in all of human history? The answer has to be Jesus. There's, just, there's no contest. And if, if you asked who has had the most fruitful life in all of human history... The answer would also have to be Jesus. There is a profound connection between fruitfulness and suffering. It's as though, it's as though, as though suffering is the raw material that God uses for fruitfulness in our life. Uh, verse 19 is exactly what Jesus did. He says, entrust yourself to a faithful creator while doing good. Think about this. Peter is calling us to do exactly what Jesus did. How do I know this? Because listen to what Peter said earlier. He said, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's the same word, entrusted. Jesus entrusted himself to God. And what is the call for you tonight if you suffer and when you suffer? Peter says, entrust your soul to your faithful creator. In other words, follow Jesus. Do what he did. How how we suffer exposes what it is that we trust in. So do we really believe that God will make this right? How we live shows if we believe that or not. So if the crowd shouts, change or we will hate you. Part of the way we really trust God is by refusing to do it. Because we know in the last days those threats will ring empty. He calls you to follow the road of Jesus and remember that he knew suffering firsthand and he knows yours as well. Entrust yourself to him. Just like he entrusted himself to the Father. In the meantime, he says, don't be surprised, but rejoice." If you're insulted, remember that he's blessed you. And finally, he says, Don't be ashamed. Our God is using your suffering, even your hidden suffering that no one else really knows. He is using that to bring incredible fruit into your life and even as a blessing in the lives of others. So if you find yourself suffering in silence, wondering to yourself, does he care? Does he listen? Do I matter? His unambiguous answer is, you matter. I'm counting your tears. I will answer every one of them with more joy and greater blessing than you could ever possibly know. That is his promise to us. Let's pray. Our God... I don't think I could number all the ways that your saints, even in this room tonight, have suffered or even will suffer. None of us can know what the future holds, but we know that you do. Would you, O oh God, work in our hearts a deep trust, persuading us to the core of who we are that we really can commit ourselves into your hands, just as your son did when he experienced suffering firsthand? Would you convince us, Lord, that you can and you will bring fruit even out of the hardest, harshest soil of our own lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.